Welcome back or welcome to the Single Track Podcast. I'm your host, Finn Melanson, and in this episode, we talk with Barry Dana, an ultra runner and former chief of the Penobscot Nation, currently based in Solon, Maine. I was introduced to Barry after reading an article in Down East Magazine detailing his numerous adventure runs through the 100-mile wilderness, which you might recognize as the last section of the Appalachian Trail before the northern terminus at Mount Katahdin. Barry and I talk about his upbringing on the Penobscot Reservation, how his nation's history influenced his entry into trail running, the Katahdin 100 event, his experiences along the 100-mile wilderness, his overall thoughts on the Appalachian Trail. We also talk about environmentalism, politics, and way more. Let's get started. Barry, it's great to have you on. Maybe we start this conversation spending a little bit of time on your background. Well, I'm 63 years old. I grew up on the Penobscot Reservation, part of the uh, Penobscot tribe, uh, native people here in about, I guess what you would call central state and um, right in the middle of the river. We had a bridge, so we were able to get back and forth. Maine has a lot of small towns and a few cities. So it's kind of kind of rural life in Maine where I grew up. Never really used to the cities much until I went to the University of Maine in Orono. That seemed like a city to me, so that took some getting used to. I I was an athlete my entire life, so running was a part of everything I did from, you know, as a kid playing hide and go seek to later on joining a track club that that was called the Andrew Sock Alexis Track Club. Andrew Sock Alexis was a Penobscot who ran in the 1912 Olympics at the age of 17 and he got fourth place. He went on to play second in the Boston Marathon twice. So he was quite the runner. And with my tribe, my people, and, and many tribes across what's now called America, we all have a history and, and heritage of running. So it's something I grew up with, listening to stories of people running, listening to my grandfather, you know, snowshoeing up the river 40 miles at a time, and then predating, you know, colonization. Our, our people were runners. They ran messages, sometimes 200 miles at a time. You know, I heard stories of people running down caribou and running down moose. So, it, you know, it's something that running was part of what I felt is our, my culture and something that I wanted to be a part of. In my early 20s, I wanted to revive a tradition that we have with my people, and that's going to Katahdin, you know, for spiritual reasons, ceremony. So I decided that running would have to be the way to do that. We call it a sacred run. You're running and you're offering prayers, you know, for people's healing and things of that nature. So it took me two and a half days to run it because we, we, I didn't try to run all night. You know, we, we slept for two nights and got there on the third day. And I've been doing that ever since. So we just had our 40th anniversary for the Katahdin 100, we call it. People will canoe up the river, some will bike it, some will run it, some will walk it. And as of late, my wife and I have been hiking the Wilderness 100 
to get to the mountain. So it, it's part of the, the ceremony of the um, going to Katahdin every Labor Day weekend. Just to talk about the Katahdin 100 for a second, does it not necessarily matter how you get there as long as you get to the peak of the mountain? Did I understand that correctly? Yeah, and what's also equally important is we have, uh, you know, our crew along the way that help us. Um, you know, they carry all our stuff for us. Because on the 100-mile wilderness, we don't have crew carrying anything for us, but we do have crew meeting us at the road crossings. And we do not go to the summit for this particular ceremony. The summit is saved for more, for different ceremonies. This particular ceremony ends at the base of the mountain where we all gather and we have a nice big potluck meal. And then the, the next morning we get up and we do a closing circle by, you know, talking about our experiences along the way. So, um, yeah, people will, there's, you know, it, you know, we're not looking at, it's not a race. So it's a spiritual event. So people aren't really training for it a lot. So they might just last minute, spur of the moment, jump on a bike and bike to Katahdin <laughs> mm. or walk it. Some people will do it in relay, and they've been doing that for for oh, 30-something years. A family gets together, and they do it relay. So we can have at the finish uh, on, on that Labor Day weekend's Sunday as much as 100 people who have gone to the mountain, even though some of them may have just driven there. It's all part of the ceremony. I have a couple more questions from what you mentioned earlier. The first, I'm curious what, to your knowledge, the pre-contact Penobscot world looked like. Could you paint that picture for us? Yeah, I mean, uh, we were hunting mastodons. How's that for pre-contact? <laughs> <laughs> you know, with the with the addle addle, you know. Um, so our our stories go back. Too, literally, and I didn't understand it when I was a kid, but our stories go back to the time where we were hunting gigantic animals. And I thought, well, you know, these are just made up stories like Santa Claus or something. But no, in fact, we were. So that was the life here. And, um, you know, once the land rebounded after the glaciers left, it created the, uh, the lakes and the rivers. And that's that's where the food was most plentiful. You know, we are a riverine people. We eat fish mm. and a lot of fish. <laughs> so you want to live where the food is, is the greatest. So, you know, our entire spring, summer, and falls were spent harvesting fish and putting them up for the year. So, you know, it, not trying to create an idyllic, idealistic uh, picture, but, you know, from my knowledge, that's, that's what a lot of our life pre-contact was, was, you know, food food um, preparation and we had oh that was all you know we had sports we had pol not politics but we had you know systems by which we we uh, chose our leaders and you know we had our own language and we never had a religion you know some people get confused with that you know well the native religion is so cool because it's in contact with you know nature it's like well yes but it's not a religion because it's not you know, it's not framed. It's not, you know, rules and regulations. There's just this um, open-minded, open-hearted, you know, spiritual connection to nature. 
See, I think that's where, that's why those teachings are so critical because we're taught to be connected to, to everything in nature. We are personally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually connected to the grass, the trees, the plants, the water, the rocks, animals. Mm. And, it, and a lot of this is all in our, our traditional prayers, you know. So it's like, you know, we always call upon our ancestors and we see our ancestors in everything that we see now, like the birds and the animals and, and the, everything in nature. So it's this huge cycle of, you know, the sacred cycle, the sacred circle of, of life you know, going on and on, you know, generation to generation. And how did trail running play into that culture? Yeah, I was just going to say that too. We have these ancient stories of uh, our people running down caribou. And and I just, you know, when I hear that, I'm, I'm ready to, I'm ready to put down, down the phone and go for a run. You know, it's like, all right, I want to do that. Well, they weren't just running them down. They were tracking them down. So there's this whole lifestyle of understanding the landscape, how to pace yourself, and how to how to track an animal different from the herd. You know, if you've got 10 caribou running away and you've picked one, you know that particular caribou based on its track versus the other ones. I just, I'm so fascinated by hearing those stories. And, uh, you know, and then... Um, there was, you know, there's stories about, you know, being able to deliver a message within two days, 200 miles away. So it's like, wow, you know, so the people in New Brunswick, they would know what's going on in the Massachusetts area two days later. I, I don't understand the exact, how it was exactly done, but those are the stories I heard growing up. Well, the way you describe it, the natural orienteering skills, the oneness with the land, the traveling two plus days to deliver messages, that sounds like somebody that could crush the Barkley Marathons. That's why I want to do it. <laughs> and I'm getting old. I said, I said, the only reason Lars has it during that time of year because he knows I can't make it that time of year and he doesn't want me to finish it. <laughs> I think that's the greatest race there is. See, again, a dollar what? Something, a dollar something registration form. It's kind of like, you know, the 100 mile wilderness. You know, you're, you're a fool if you try it. <laughs> <laughs> so I apologize for being all over the place with these questions, but you just mentioned a lot of things earlier that I want to shed some light on. For example, Andrew Sokalexis. Could you talk more about? who he was, what he meant to the Penobscot tribe, stuff like that? Well, you know, he, again, he followed in a line of many people who were runners, but it's not everybody who's going to get an opportunity to highlight, you know, be highlighted. So I don't really know how he got that opportunity to go to the Olympics. It must have been that he was running in all these local races and probably creating a name for himself. So beating beating some pretty big names like Clarence DeMar and people like that must have gotten him that recognition for a shot on the Olympic team. So I, and I don't know if they had trials for that at that time, but he was on the team 
And the story that we hear is, you know, he was 17 years old. He goes to Munich and he gets like a food poisoning. So his stomach is all messed up. And the coach told him to lay back, you know, don't try to stay with the leaders. And the leaders went out fast and the Americans lagged back a little bit. And it was an out and back course. So when Andrew saw the leaders coming at him, he figured, oh, oh, no, we're too far back. So he took off. He left the Americans and he went out and tried to catch those leaders and end up coming in fourth place. But we always like to think if he didn't have that stomach ache and if he didn't get bad advice, he might have won it even at age 17. Who knows? So he was quite the uh, hero around here running against horses on the track and, and beating them if the distance was long enough. And he had a course on the reservation that I grew up and it was a you know single track and uh, he would just run it. They'd see him running it. All, you know, hours in the morning, hours in the afternoon. So uh, running was his life. Just a few more background questions here to set the rest of the table. Can you talk also a bit about your role in the past as the Penobscot Nation chief and what that involved? Yeah, I ran for chief. It's a, you know, political position today. You know, it's uh, a, what do you call it? Popular vote. So people vote. So you have to run an election. I came to wanting to be the leader because the way I was raised, my my family took a lot of pride in tribal leadership and you know decision making and being good orders in terms of you know being able to discuss these matters respectfully with even those that you disagree with. So I just grew up with that. When I got to be an adult and I saw, you know, maybe I didn't necessarily agree with some of the things the tribe was doing, I wanted to step in and maybe try to get them back on a more traditionally native thinking track. But I didn't really have time to do that. You get into political leadership and, you know, it has its own agenda that kind of drives you. So the first thing I had to deal with when I was just as green as you can get was the fact that the state of Maine sued my tribe over water quality issues. And then I'm thrown into the fire. So my first thing to do was to fight the state of Maine in terms of native sovereignty. And I put everything I had into that. And I think we really moved this state Quite a few squares in terms of understanding, realizing that there are Native people in the state, and they're different. They have their own government, their own uh, language, their own way of doing things and seeing things. And this state doesn't like that. It wants us to be like every other citizen in the state of Maine, but we're not. Never have been. We were here for 12,000 years before anyone ever came in to a place they now call Maine. So we are our own people. We, we are a sovereign people, inherent sovereign. So that's the operation. That's how I operated. And it was quite a battle with the state of Maine fighting over the river. And then I know you mentioned earlier wanting to bring back the Katahdin 100 when you were in your 20s, but 
at what point in your life do you recall being attracted to ultra running? And was it based on the role the sport played in the ancestral culture or were there other parts to it? Well, once I started the Katahdin 100, my first attempt was to run it. And then I tried to, my mantra was, I think if you're going to be a true Penobscot runner, you, and if you're only going to go a hundred miles, it had better be from one sunrise to the other, to the very next. Mm. And I really wasn't into the, you know, the ultra running scene then in terms of what people were running for a hundred milers. But to me, it just seemed like it should be done in 24 hours. So I started, you know, trying to figure out how to do that. And it took me about three or four years. And I finally figured, you know, a, a good combination of running some, walking some, and sitting some, and nibbling and drinking for the entire 100 miles. And, and I finally got it under 24 hours. So that, I think, probably kept me in the game for eventually, at some point, wanting to do more ultra running events outside of because the only thing I ever did for ultra was the Katahdin 100 and that was once a year on Labor Day weekend. My wife and I were competitive whitewater paddlers so we spent you know all of us spring summer and fall paddling never really training to become runners but in later years you know we felt like we mastered the canoeing sport and we won quite a few national titles and for some reason, we just decided that maybe it's time to put the paddles down and, and relax a little bit. And in Maine, we have a race now that was called the Pineland Farms 50-miler. And they also had a 50-kilometer and, and a shorter one as well. So we, my wife and I signed up for the 50-kilometer. And when these guys would pass me, you know, and I'd, I'd look at their bib and I could see that they were signed up for the 50-miler. I'm like, oh my goodness, they're running further than we are and they're passing us. It really intrigued me that, you know, and as they would pass me, I'd say, hey, how do you get ready for a 50 miler? And they'd say, learn how to walk. <laughs> so it's like, well, so I got bit by that after I'd done my first 50K. Uh, we finished that in like, I think it was six hours. Okay. And um, I got bit by that. So I've been, I've been trying ever since really to, to get into the ultra scene. But in Maine, all we really have is the Pineland Farm. And of course, that's just once a year. And then at the Pineland 50, I was running alongside of a guy who said he had done a 100-mile challenge on the Appalachian Trail. And I said, oh, that sounds interesting. What is that? Because I like hiking, you know. And he says, well, you got you to gotta do the 100-mile wilderness in 48 hours to be a finisher. And he told me about his experience. And I said, are you going to do it again? And he said, no way. <laughs> he said it was just too brutal. But that, I think that itself right there probably excited me most about anything in the ultra, ultra world was looking, looking into doing the 100-mile wilderness. Well, I think this is a good place to talk about the 100-mile wilderness. Most listeners of the show, I think, understand it as the last section of the Appalachian Trail before the northern terminus at Mount Katahdin, but could you talk more about its history, you know, what makes it so special to you, and yeah, just where your mind goes when you reflect on it? 
Well, for me, being native, when I'm on the trail, I'm running with my ancestors. That's how I, I feel about it. You're out there. You know, the, the first time I ever tried the challenge, I was alone during the night. And it's just a different world out there. So for me, it, it was, it's a chance to reconnect with ancestral territory that we don't get to see much unless you're on the trail. And it's just a way to, you know, really, I think, for me personally, find my potential in this, you know, how far can I go and how fast, you know, can I go doing it? Even though I'm not that fast, I I want to seek my potential and what what is it? So that's what I've been doing. I I finished my first attempt in 45 hours and then I realized there was a lot of things I did wrong out there in terms of I, I could do it better. So I trained up. I took two years and then I tried it again and did it in 39 hours. And I thought, you know, at age 61, that's not too bad. So I wanted to do more of it. It's just something about that trail. It, it is tough, you know, and, and it's known by people as the toughest section of the entire Appalachian Trail, 2,000 miles. I don't know because I've never done the whole 2,000 miles, but, you know, I think the trail is as tough as you make it personally. I and mean, if you're really trying to push the pace, it's going to eat you up, you know, but if you pace yourself, then it's very doable. So I think it's a combination of being native to this area that's my homelands, my ancestral homelands. So I love being out there. I love being on the, water, the bodies of water. It goes past like Namakana. Yeah. That's the Penobscot name. You know, Nasuntaban, Katahdin is Penobscot name for the greatest mountain. So it's just, it's just you know, I'm, I'm immersed in my, my culture, if you will. Okay, so you mentioned Nasuntaban there, and I've personally done the 100-mile wilderness three times and each time I am on that mountain it's the last one before you summit Katahdin I always feel for lack of a better term that there are ghosts in that area not necessarily negative ghosts not necessarily positive ghosts but there's this extreme energy force around me and it can be a little spooky it can be a little inspiring too but I guess what I'm wondering do you have any explanation for why that particular section of the wilderness has that effect well, I don't know of any ancestral stories that would relate to that other than my own experiences. And whether you're doing the Katahdin 100 up the river or on the road or on the trail, when you get to within a certain radius of the mountain, something else takes over. When I did my first attempt, we got a bad start. And there was a lot of things that went wrong. and I was at the halfway point in, in uh, 24 hours and, and I was tired, you know? So the crew said I had two people crewing. I had three people crewing and my wife was one of them. And they said, boy, you know, he's not going to do it. He's not going to make that 48 hours. My wife said, you don't know him. <laughs> When he gets close to that mountain, something's going to take over and he will do it. So, uh, and that's exactly what happened. You get to a certain point, and I think the Santa Bunt in particular, where it's another high point, 
there's something about that geology that creates energy that flows upward. And so you get a high point like Nasantabat right next to Katahdin. I think from that point to the mountain, it's just, it's like a, it's like a magnet. It's, it's pulling you in. Yeah. I was going to ask in those ancestral stories, is there a certain role that Katahdin plays in terms of being a life force pulling stuff in? Because in many ways, in my experiences on the trail, I felt like I was being brought to the mountain. I can't explain it any other way than that. Yeah, the stories are that when we were in need, we would go to the mountain and we would seek answers for, you know, whatever's going on. And we would go there fast and we would receive, you know, the answers that we were looking for. So the biggest difference with native people going there, if it's in ceremony, we prepare ourselves well ahead of time by doing ceremony to make ourselves worthy of being at that mountain. Mm. So it grinds grinds our teeth sometimes seeing, you know, other people hike it and then get up on top and, you know, they're all rah, rah, rah. And it's like, you know, it's a sacred place to us. And it would be nice for people to show humility while they're being there because Katahdin allows you to climb it. You know, it's not a place that you go to conquer. It's a place to be with the mountain and with those ancestral spirits that, that are there, that we recognize that are there. It's almost like every every native person who dies probably ends up on Katahdin somewhere. And when we want to go see our ancestors, that's where we go. So it's pretty powerful for us. Okay, this is a little random, but I think it fits into this part of the conversation. In other interviews and writings, you've used the word sagama before as it relates to your experience on trail. Can you explain this term? Because I think it's a new one for most of the audience, but it has an interesting background. When I was elected, the term for the leader was governor. And then when I went to fight with the state of Maine, you know, I'm fighting governor Angus King, governor John Baldacci. So my tribe decided, you know, we don't like that. So, you know, we're going to call our leader the chief. All right. So they, you know, we passed a tribal law that says we are now, I'm now the chief. Okay, that's that's fine. But then some of the older people who really appreciated the work that I was doing started calling me Sagama. Now, that's an old name. You know, um, that's a traditional Penobscot name. And, and, you know, I took that to be such a great honor. And then my cousin, who works tirelessly to preserve our language, gave me the a better understanding of what it actually means. Well, sug, the, the prefix is something hard. So sagama is a, is a person who is hardened and not hardened in the head and like, like a hard head, but, <laughs> but a person who is hardened by, and then she told me hardened by running. It was the runners because of their, their strict uh, regimen of running that hardened them into, you know, it's like, it's like today, you know, people say, well, when you, when you do sports, you know, it builds character. Mm. 
I suppose it's along those that lines of thinking. If you're if you're one of the runners and you're doing this on behalf of your people, then you you are really taking on a leadership role because when you act in be, on behalf of your people, that's what a leader does. Now, even though I'm hiking the AT and I'm not you know in politics anymore, you know that that whole concept of sagam, you know, getting hardened on the trail, I, I really like that. That that keeps that's kind of like my mantra when things are getting tough. I said, well, you get a, you're getting hardened and it'll pay off in the end. I was going to ask you, what was your mantra in the 100 mile wilderness? Oh, I think I look at my 39 hour one because I was, I felt pretty, pretty solid on that. I knew I was going to do for me, I knew I was going to set a PR. I think the mantra was, you can't stop me. <laughs> you know, you trip. I don't care. You can't stop me. You know, you, you, you fall down. I don't care. You can't stop me. I, I fell a couple times and it's like, I'm going to just keep going. Uh, I remember hallucinating crossing this, this stream that had kind of dried up and it was just all rocks. And I started crossing the stream and all the rocks started moving on me. It's like, what the heck? I had to go back. You know, it's like, those rocks are moving. <laughs> I said, well, that's not going to stop me. So I, you know, I just kind of got that in my head. I'm going to, I'm going to keep going. I don't care what gets in my way. I tried it again after the 39. I tried it again the following year. I, I did a lot of training as much as I could at least. And um, I was really, really holding a good pace for me, you know, probably like three miles an hour. I was right on three miles an hour for 40 miles. And then my road crew got lost. So I lost it right there. <laughs> I was 40 miles in, I was feeling great. And well, the road crew didn't show up. So I lost four hours. So I just hiked to the next road where my wife was waiting for me and we had breakfast and I went home. So kind of like unfinished business. So I'm gonna try it again this year, see what happens. Okay, I've got to ask about this too, actually. <laughs> so, from what I understand, you make a lot of your own food and gear for these runs, like hiking poles, for example, and you're not taking traditional gels, you're making stuff from scratch. Can you talk more about this? You know, I, I do combine it. I, I, I will have a gel on hand if I feel like nothing's going good. And I need a really quick shot. Um, I'll I'll take it, but I I might carry the gel for 50 miles and not take it. But I just have it as a backup. Um, you know, I'm I'm using the Ultra running shoes, an Ultimate backpack. So you know, I'm 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 in the I'm in the culture a little bit as as well as everybody. My my water bottles are just you know like when you stop at a store on the way home and you get something to drink. I don't have fancy water bottles because I don't like how they, you know, those collapsible ones. I just don't like messing with them. So I, I use my own water bottles, which are just, you know, juice bottles. I think the where I differ more than anybody though is probably the hiking poles. Oh, when I first got into ultra running, and you know, in, in the in the Raramari, were were all the hot rage with the, Harachi uh, yes. sneakers. Uh, sandals yeah i made my own of those <laughs> and 
and I can tell you, I didn't do very well on the trail with them. So I, I converted back to trail shoes. But no, I make my own hiking poles out of uh, hardwood saplings. And uh, I find I find them to be better than than the hiking poles that just break on you anyway. So if I'm going to break a pole, I want to break a pole that doesn't cost me anything. As far as my nutrition goes, I do create my own um, drink that's comprised of maple syrup that my wife and I make. Also birch syrup that I make. And I combine it with um, water, a little bit of sea salt, and a little bit of um, vinegar. And that keeps me from cramping. So that's my electrolyte drink. I've got to say, the inner capitalist in me thinks you have two absolutely fantastic winning business ideas. I mean, just with those hiking poles, for example, there is a 1 million percent chance of a market in our community for that. Yeah. And my food is um, the go-to food. Number one is the bread that my wife makes me. And she makes it out of the corn that we grow from traditional uh, Abenaki corn. I can just go and go and go and go. That's why I don't feel the need to take the gels because I don't want that quick energy. You know, I don't want to go high and then low. I want to stay level. Mm. So, you know, you put the butter on that bread and you know, I'll, have two, I'll have two of those at a road crossing and I'm, I'm ready to go. I do want to go back to the conversation on Mount Katahdin here for a moment. I think when a lot of listeners think about Katahdin, they are familiar with, for example, the athletes in our sport that are going after fastest known times. Scott Jurek is one of those well-known names. And yeah, I think it's fair to have this conversation. He is partly famous for the fastest known time he set on the trail back in 2015 and the moment when his party had a celebration at the top of the mountain. I think there was champagne involved. I think it created a rift with the Baxter State Park authorities that helped manage the mountain because, you know, he was in defiance of their rules. But you've also painted a picture of rules for that mountain that exist alongside the Baxter State Park authorities. They are ancestral in origin, and I'm curious if you have any thoughts on what happened at the end of his hike there and maybe how listeners should be thinking about it. Yeah, um, because we do the Katahdin 100 every year and we, we, we go to the base of the mountain, we have a very close relationship with the park authorities. And where we go is the same place that all the thru-hikers go and those seeking the FKT have to go through a campground called Katahdin Stream Campground. And we know the ranger there really well, and, and we've known him for <laughs> probably a good 20 years now. He's the same guy that's been there every year. And we talked with him, you know, about that. And uh, I know when I saw the champagne, I was very upset with Scott. And I, I was kind of disappointed because I had been following him, you know, as best I could on uh, – the ultra running Facebook page. I think that's where they were given updates, but anyway, it was, it was just kind of exciting. You know, he's doing the AT. I mean, I love the AT and here in Maine. 
and um, he's headed towards the mountain. And uh, and then then I saw probably in the Bangor Daily News the picture of him with the champagne, and I was very disappointed in him. So when we went to Katahdin, I talked with the ranger there, and and he he was um, he told me that they they had a meeting with him before he even went up the mountain, and they gave him the rules. So they, the, the park officials there really respect native tradition there, native ceremony, and they know our position on how people treat the mountain. And even beyond that, they themselves don't want any alcohol up there. So they told him no alcohol, and he can only have a party of 10 people. And there was a lot of people up there. He claims they weren't all in his party, so I don't know about that. But but I do know about the champagne. And to me, that was the desecration of a sacred place. Mm-hmm. And I would ask that the ultra community recognize that when they're on these these mountaintops, you know, there's more than likely a a local tribe there that that reveres it as a sacred place, and that people behave and, and control themselves in a sacred manner as best they can. And certainly champagne all over the mountaintop, which has very fragile plants up there that only grow on that mountain. Mm-hmm. And there's butterflies that own, or moths that only are found on Katahdin. You cannot disturb that terrain up there. It is, you know, we call it sacred, but, uh, you know, the, the scientists know that, that this is a very special place. So to, you know, to do that with champagne, I thought was really, really immature, really kind of summed up, you know, a lot of bad, bad boy behavior. And I had wished he had, um, you know, he, you know, he had problems with, with the park after that. And I, I think there was a court case and, Beyond all that, all I wanted was an apology, you know, acknowledgement that, you know, I, I didn't get, I didn't know, you know, to what extent doing something like that would cause, you know, offend people that, and just to apologize mainly to native people. I don't, I don't think you'd have to apologize to anyone else, but native people who revere the mountain, that, that's our homeland. And so I'd, I'd wish he had followed up with something like that. Do you know if there have been any attempts made at reconciliation? Like, do you actually think, actually, the first question I should ask, do you think he's aware of your thoughts on this or the native perspective on this? Or do you think he's only aware of the dispute he's had with park officials? Well, I joined in some conversations on the Facebook page, Trail and Ultra Runner. I think I may have even posted the picture of him on the mountain with the champagne and asked people not to do that anymore. <laughs> and they said he was well entitled to do that. It's within his right to do that. And I'm asking people from a native position, please don't do it. And um, I, I remember one person saying he's very, very respectful of native people. Well, you know, I can't take that away from him. He may be, but in this particular situation, he was not aware. Mm. And I'm, I can only imagine that the park rangers made him aware of, of this. So, so no, there has not been, in, in, to my knowledge, 
any reconciliation to the native people for desecrating a sacred place. And, and, you were saying- and so after the event happened with Scott, um, you know, I talked with the Rangers and what they did, I'm not sure all of what they did, but I, I know what they did was they created a bunch of flyers that they hung in key places along the trail in, in Maine. So when you come into Maine, you're on the AT, as you approach the mountain, please be aware that this is a sacred place to, to Maine's native people. So I thought that was good, you know, good PR, good, good education. Did you follow Scott's attempt this past summer in uh, 2021 when he returned to make a southbound attempt? Um, I, didn't, I didn't know it was happening until I actually ran into him on the trail. I was out training myself for the 100-mile wilderness, and I didn't see Scott, but I saw his crew, and I, I ran into his crew, and I, and, well, they had double parked in back of my vehicle, and I told them, hey, dude, get your car out of my, <laughs> I need to go home, you know, and it, and it turned out to be Kyle Metzler, and it's like, holy cow, this is Kyle, wow, what are you doing here, you know, and he goes, oh, nothing, just waiting on a friend. And I'm thinking, well, Cal Metzler's not going to be out here in Maine just waiting on a friend, doing nothing. I mean, there's something going on here. So um, then the other guy who does a lot of YouTube videos, uh, Ryan, I forget his last name. Oh, Doozer. Okay, yeah. He and he was there, and I'm thinking, all right, you guys, what's going on? <laughs> you know, you big-name guys uh, don't just show up on a little obscure section on the AT in the back of the woods of nowhere here. And... uh they, and so Ryan, Ryan didn't know apparently that they wanted to keep this thing a secret. He goes, so how's Scott doing? And they all went, oh, geez, Ryan. He says, oh, did I spill the beans? <laughs> I said, oh, Scott. I, I said, you don't mean Scott Jarrett, do you? And Ryan goes, oh, my God, I think I spilled, spilled the beans. And they're, they're all said, that, oh, it's okay. Don't worry about it. You know. But, so I don't know why they were trying to keep it secret. I did talk with the park ranger when we went two on our, our next K100, you know, I asked if Scott signed in to the park. They, they said no. He had climbed the mountain without signing in, and, and that's a no-no. You don't do that. You have to sign in because they're responsible for people on that mountain. If they have to rescue them. So they said he didn't sign in, so for some reason, it seemed like they wanted to keep it quiet for a while. I don't know. So that was that's how I became aware that he was trying the uh, SKT attempt again. I had a great time with his crew. They were fun. And did you start following it after that? The second attempt? Yeah. No, he he didn't uh, he didn't do very well. He got injured, and um, you know. And as I thought about that, I saw the video that Ryan put together on YouTube, and. Um, Scott didn't look right. This was as early as Monson when he started filming him. And there was something about Scott. I I felt he didn't look right. Something is not right. So we watched the, we watched the film. and, And at the end of it, my wife and I said, you know, he didn't reconcile with the mountain. And this was the mountains payback. Wow. That's, that's how we look at things. You know, it's kind of like karma, I guess. If you're gonna, yeah. 
Yeah, the mountain, the mountain spanked him. <laughs> wow. So, you, so, so I don't know if he, I don't know if he took off too fast, you know, coming down the mountain too excited or something, and 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 ended up developing an injury over time over the next couple hundred mile, hundred miles or what. But to me, that's that's how we took it. You know, he didn't reconcile, so this time he had to pay the price. So you're essentially saying that if Scott wants to return to the Appalachian Trail and if he wants to be successful to complete the journey, first, he has to apologize to the mountain. He has to make amends with the history there, the tradition there, and so forth. It's an idea that doesn't hurt anybody. You know, if anybody is told a difference in their behavior, Mm. you know, it's a saying, if you know better, you should do better. So... You know, if he was going to try it again, you know, I'd, I'd like to see him make amends with the native people, mm. make amends with the mountain and have a good run. I think it's relevant to bring this up here because you are describing how there needs to be a certain way of doing things if you're going to be on the mountain. And I'm not sure if this is part of the tradition that we've been talking about, but I do know that the people that maintain the Appalachian Trail today, they are pretty prescriptive about the way athletes should conduct themselves on the trail. Like for example, they are not very big fans of running the trail. In fact, I'm pretty sure in all of their marketing and their literature, they actively discourage it. And I'm curious what you think about that because obviously like myself, like Scott, like others in this community, you run these trails as well. Like we we were just talking about the hundred mile wilderness a moment ago. So what are your thoughts on those rules? Well, for me personally, being native, these are my homelands. And they put their trail across my homeland. I'm, am, I see myself as um, preserving a tradition of, of what my ancestors did. Now, they, they ran 200 miles at a time. You know, that's something that sticks in my head. Mm. And, you, you know, it's best that you have a trail to do that. But in the olden times before clear cutting and before all the deforestation that we have in Maine now, I'm not so sure you needed a trail. I, I think you just needed to know the landscape because, uh, you know, the trees were huge. We didn't have all the, the thick underbrush we have now. So I think they could run freely, you know, as long as they knew, you know, the landscape. Yeah. Um, so, Obviously, that's a lot different now. So you really need that trail because the the landscape is so gnarly. I mean, there's no way you could even hike. Yeah. You know, you, you would be bushwhacking the whole way. So you know, it's nice to have this trail. It's it's well done, and, and you have people volunteering their summers to you know maintain it. You, you've got amazing um, knowledge on that trail how to do the rock work. You know, they create these steps and stuff. Yeah. They're they're doing drainage things to you know for proper runoff of the water. So there's a lot of good things that that their authority has that um, benefits trail. I don't think though that a few people and and because they're protective of it, maybe that's a good thing in the sense that it does keep um it prevents having an event 
you know, like, like a, like a race. Okay. So we're going to have the hundred mile challenge. Everybody sign up and you're going to pay you $50 or $150, you know, and, and here's the rules and regs, you know? So I, I kind of like the fact that that's not the case, that there is no race on it. But if you personally want to go and challenge yourself on that section of the trail, I see no problem with that. We don't hurt anybody. It's not like when I do it, I've got 15 people with me. You know, I may have uh, last year was the first time I had anybody really. uh, And that was Jed Coffin and he was great to have. But then again, it's just the two of us. And you know what? We're not so good that we can actually run much of it anyway. So basically we're speed hiking. Yeah. And you get AT through hikers that are pretty good hikers. And you know, they're carrying a pack. They, they, you know, they're doing about three miles an hour too. So, you know, it's, it's all relative. So, you know, I think their protection is good that there's no organized events on it, that you keep the numbers down to no more than 10. So I, I, I see some value in it, but, um, they, they need to rein in, you know, trying to be, overly protective when they don't need to yeah you mentioned that the trail was built over native land and i'm curious if you ultimately think that was a net good or whether it should be given back and considered for repurposing like the prospect of there being no trail there at all and other development goes in well there's a big movement in america right now called land back and it's it's tribal uh entities trying to create relationships with those that that occupy our lands, trying to reestablish our uh, participation on those lands in some form or manner. So like with parks, you know, like um, national and state parks, you know, they were, they're all the homeland of, of a native um, group, a native tribe. And there's a lot of effort right now to either return lands outright or create relationships where native people have some input in the, in the, in the governance of those lands. So here in Maine, you know, there's a federal park called Acadia national park. And that's, those talks are ongoing. We have more involvement there, not a lot of involvement, and personally, for me, I'd like to see the Baxter State Park, which holds our sacred mountain, mm. um, have a seat at the table for a native person on their authority so that we, we, have, we have a say in what goes on there. And I think that would be really just an extension of the, the relationship we have right now, but it would be more of a formalized one. Mm. There was a organization of... Uh, conservationist groups and they just gifted back to my tribe 700 acres so you know it is it is on the tips and tongues of a lot of um, NGOs out there and tribes so it is something that um, is happening and, and it's gaining momentum uh, it's, it's it's you know it's not like all right we want all of our land back and we want everybody to go back to Europe where they came from it's 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 not like that and yeah. um, you know, it's it's way more adult-like. <laughs> People get a little upset. Oh, you want to take my land from me? Well, no, but you can give it back if you want. And if you don't want, then that's up to you. But I like I like to see people um, consider if they if they don't have any heirs, 
then Eric back back to the tribes. You know, you know, there's all kinds of little models like that that we can talk about. But I always I love talking about land back, and I I like to you know it not not uh, shame people, but I like to kind of smack them a little bit by saying, hey, you're on stolen land. You know that, right? <laughs> they say, well, I didn't steal it. No, but someone stole it so you can enjoy it. So, you know, so at least that starts the conversation. Uh, lands are stolen. And if you ever wanted to research something to, to see why we say that, look up the Vatican Doctrine of Discovery. The United States uh, adopted it as law, where it basically says, you know, indigenous peoples, if they're not Christian, they can't own land. Mm. Therefore, we never own land. So Europe could take it. And if, you know, that that was just a, a doctrine created by the Vatican. I mean, why is that the ultimate supreme law of the land? We mm. recognize that. So that's gives us a place to you know go back to in terms of understanding the mentality of taking native lands just planting a flag and it's yours you know it's like well no it's not so here we are today you know on 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 native lands and these beautiful parks and trails cut through our lands the um the the, the least that people can do is to acknowledge it I'm sure you're familiar now with land acknowledgments. People will start a conference and they'll say, we want to recognize the fact that we're on Wabanaki traditional lands here. And it's nice. You know, it's kind of like thoughts and prayers. and It doesn't really do a lot, but it's kind of nice to acknowledge it just so that, you know, there is some sense of mindfulness that you're you're on Native territory. Do you take any issue with the establishment of national parks across the country and yeah, I'm just curious what your thoughts are on, you know, relatively famous classic naturalists like John Muir and Teddy Roosevelt, et cetera, because I feel like those narratives are very intertwined and we're having this conversation about land back, for example, so it's all relevant. Yeah, you know, it's hard to come out and say, I have a problem with parks, national parks, because everybody loves parks because they're beautiful you know, and beautiful land and they're being protected the problem is to have those beautiful lands they had to get rid of native people to do it uh, i don't think john muir meant it when he said you know everybody should come to see these lands but you know these these first people who wrote about it and took photographs they opened the america you know american um minds to what the West looked like and, you know, and it, it brought more people to them. And the more people traveling West, the more the army has to protect them from invading native territory when the government signed off as such. And then you get someone like Teddy Roosevelt, who's quote, he, 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 um, used a quote of a prior general who said the only good Indian was a dead Indian. He said it in a little bit different manner, but it all means the same thing. You know, so Teddy Roosevelt is, is uh, credited for national parks. And the way I see it, he's credited for the ethnic cleansing of native people to create those parks. Mm. So yeah, I have a little bit of problem with national parks. 
I wasn't aware of that Vatican document. That is absolutely fascinating. And yeah, we will link to it in the show notes for sure. Yeah, it's still on their books. We've asked them, the Native people all over the world, Indigenous peoples have asked the Vatican to rescind it, and they won't. Mm. And like I said, the Supreme Court has used it in in decisions against Native people to to rule on behalf of the states that took their land. It's, it's just insidious. Switching gears again to talk more about events. We've talked a lot on this show about the differences between trail running in the Northeast versus trail running out West. And here in the West, in my neck of the woods, the formal race scene is more developed and in the Northeast, not so much. And I've always wondered what it would take to do the same and whether it's even a good idea. As I think about it in this conversation, I'm starting to think the lack of development is actually what makes the Northeast part of the world special. And so I'm curious, what do you think about that? Are you somebody that likes events or do you like these personal sort of vision quests where you're out there in the wilderness on your own? I like that. I'm calling it a vision quest. That's a, that's, that nails it really. Um, I, I like both, you know, like going down to Pineland Farms doing the 50, you got this, you know, tons and tons of people and they've got music going and people are cheering you on. They don't even know who you are. So it keeps you keeps you uplifted. So that's all fun. Um, the Katahdin 100 that we do is an organized event, not a race. Um, but even then we're still falling well within their, their, you know, what they want in terms of people's participation on the trail. So it's just a few of us at a time hiking together and we have, road crew you know at the road crossings um if i'd say if if the general culture of the trail you know let's say here in maine was okay with a race on the at i'd be awful i'd be i'd be wanting to sign up (laughs) you know what i mean it's like if there's a race on the AT, I'm gonna, I'm on it, I'm, I'm, I'm there. But there isn't a race, so it's left to us to do on our own, and I like that too. Mm. I think that's a lot harder. I think you know, if you're out there on your own and you don't have an organized event with aid stations and all that other stuff, then then you're really, it's up to you to do this. And I think there's a a certain amount of you know, reward to that. Either way, it would be exciting to do. I like it the way it is. If there was an organized event that was allowed and not, not like poached, you know, right. <laughs> like if they just said, all right, we're all going to get together and we're going to do this event to hell with them. I would not take part in that. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of economic benefits to these formal races as well. One example that comes to mind locally is what Gary Allen did in Millinocket, Maine with the Millinocket Marathon, stationing that right in the early weeks of December to help rev up the economy there. Do you think we should be doubling, tripling down on that kind of experience-based endurance tourism in the area for economic activity and opportunity? Yeah, what do you think about that? 
Well, I, I definitely see the benefits, definitely for Millinocket. You know, they're getting a good turnout. Um, I think for the most part, it's a lot of locals that are going up there. I don't, I don't get the sense that people are coming from far or near to um, do it. But, um, you know, there's no doubt that it benefits the area. And what's really cool is they don't charge anything for doing the race. They just encourage you to participate in the local economy. Um, so that that's a good thing. Um, I'm always, I'm always thinking, boy, I wish there was more races. You know, there's, there's Pineland Farms. Now there's, are you familiar with the Riverlands 100? Yes. Yeah. So there, there's that now. And that's awful early in the year, you know. I'm actually doing it tomorrow. <laughs> Not the full hundred, but uh, I just got asked recently to to join the uh, the relay team. So I'll be on a relay team of what's of, of a bunch of uh, they're called they're called the Turbo Turtles. So we're not allowed to run fast. And I said, well, I can I can do that. I can run slow. <laughs> but yeah, no, I I I think it is nice to have events. Um, I do cringe a little bit on the idea of you know tourism tourism has its good things and and it has its bad things as well it it is a a major use of of the resources in not always a good way so um i'm not big on tourism myself but i know how important it is to the state of maine i just don't like to see you know parks overrun you know, Acadia National Park has the worst air in the United States <laughs> due to due to the you know bumper to bumper traffic day after day. You know, and you know from people from all over driving there. So that you know it has its gives it gives and takes, and I think you got to be mindful of that when you're organizing an event. You know, to have a nice event but not have it you know impact the environment in a negative way. That reminds me, and I'll preface this by saying. Traveling in the ultra running community is very common. There are a lot of runners who have set goals to leave the United States, to do races in Europe, Asia, Africa, South America, across the country, you name it. It's a staple of our culture. And I think you have an interesting opinion here because, and I've seen this in other interviews and in posts you've made on Facebook, you don't agree with air travel. In fact, to some extent, you condemn it. Is that true, and and why? It is true. Um, I've had to take a stand because I, I don't get the sense that anyone else is. You know, we we are dealing. You know, they, the scientists say we are currently in a climate crisis, and they're begging world leaders, you know, to step up and and do it, do what they can to reduce carbon emissions. So when I hear that, I think, okay, good. Let's let's reduce our carbon emission. And how do we do that? So you know, when you look at our lifestyle, how are we emitting carbon? Well, we're driving vehicles, we're flying airplanes, we're buying food, we're buying clothing, we're heating our homes. There's all kinds of ways that we're emitting carbon. When 9-11 happened, there was a no-flight, you know, no one could fly for three or four days, two or three days, something like that. 
And it was nice to look up and not see any contrails. But whether the report that I heard was true or not, it, it said the Earth's temperature changed a full degree in that short amount of time. So, like I said, whether that's true or not, I thought, wow, you know, flying, if that's true, it has a super impact on the Earth's uh, uh, climate, on the climate, on the amount of ox uh, carbon dioxide in the air. So I started paying more attention to it. And at safe levels, we are supposed to be under 350 parts per million of carbon molecules in the environment, in the atmosphere. We are now at 417, I think the last time I heard. And it's like, wow, it is just overboard. You know, now we're seeing the effects of climate change. It's not just you know, it's not even a debate anymore. We're seeing direct cause wildfires, uh, tragic storms. It's taking people's lives. You know, people are dying in these fires. You know, you have traditional Native people having to relocate their villages because of the high rise, the, the sea rise. And I start putting all these pieces of the puzzle together, thinking, you know, what is the one event that we do that can cause the, the greatest amount of emissions in one act? And that's definitely flying. So it's like, okay, this this has to, you know, there has to be a conversation about this. So, you know, I, I have this conversation almost regularly with a lot of different people. And it's not to condemn them personally, it's to condemn the carbon. <laughs> if you can if you can separate it out a little bit, it's like Okay, I know you have your reason for flying. You want to see your family. You've got a job to do. You've got a career to pursue. But let's just talk about the carbon. So then we have the pandemic. Nobody's flying. I don't know if you were in Maine at the time, but up here in Maine, the blue, the sky was once again a different uh, hue of blue. It was, it was almost like the days of when I was growing up as a kid, it's like, that is a blue sky. That is different. That is, that is definitely noticeable. And I talked with a scientific, uh, a friend of mine who's into the science, he studies climate change. And he says that the carbon levels were definitely measurable during the pandemic. They did, they did go down. So it's like, well, you know, it's a, it, at some point we, as a, as a human society, you know, as a human family, global family, we've got to talk about this. We've got to, finally address our carbon impact on the planet. So, yeah, I think flying is definitely something that um, is non-essential. You know, pandemic, we learned the saying of non-essential. And I think we need to start looking at that in terms of our, our, uh, our, our, our behavior, our actions. You know, what is essential and what is non-essential? If it's not essential, at some point, we won't be able to do it. It won't be our personal choice anymore. So I think while we have the opportunity, we should be making personal choices to diminish our carbon footprint mm. as best as we can. I think a lot of people in our community, they travel abroad to experience a change of consciousness, to be blown away by different cultures, to learn new things. And I think a lot of them would tell you and myself included, I'm guilty here. Like I flew a bunch last year. I'll fly a bunch this year. I don't know when that's going to stop, but 
I think a lot of them would tell you they're going for pro-social reasons, you know, positive reasons. They're going to come back a changed person, maybe better for their community in a lot of different ways, etc. And I, I just think a lot of people feel the need to go abroad for all of those changes in themselves to happen. So what would you say are the benefits of staying local just beyond the environmental impact? Do you think that there's more to explore in your local environment, for example? Well, yeah, I, I, I think, but it's, um, I don't feel that those that you go to see benefit from you being there as much as if you compare that to the, the damage it took to get there. I don't like people going to Everest, you know, they, they love going to climb Everest, but you know, they're, the glaciers there are melting and the people's drinking water is drying up. So I think there's so much more harm done in the environmental aspect of those flights than, than the good that is done from them. So if, if what we're looking for is an epic adventure, you know, a, 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 a life-changing experience, why can't we do that more locally? I think we would get more out of it more locally if we could benefit our local communities as opposed to, you know, going across the ocean or, or, or you know, the vast places that has an impact on those places. I think, I think as far as human responsibility, um, I think we, I find it for myself personally, I, I get the same benefits, you know, locally. I just, you know, locally doesn't have to be just in your own backyard. It can be a little bit further out, you know, somewhere, you know, in the United States, let's say, that you could probably drive through or take a train to or a bus. But uh, like, I'd love to do Barclay. Oh, my God, I would love to do Barclay. <laughs> but I would take a bus or, or a train to get there, you know, or have somebody drive me. But, you know, yeah, it. You know, you can't argue that it's not a benefit to a person to experience wonderful things. But the problem now is it's it's in it's at the expense of the environment. We've gone too far with this, all right. So people traveled a hundred years ago, but they weren't necessarily flying like like we are today. So the, the the environmental damage wasn't as great, and they were able to record. What an amazing thing it was to experience all these different cultures. But I just think there's going to, you know, if we don't do it now, it, there will come a time where you don't really have a choice anymore. You won't be able to do it. Do you believe that the environmental community, the people that are really setting the agenda, setting the opinion, are clear about how important this is and where it falls in the hierarchy of actions that take to protect the planet? Because when I think about it, I've obviously heard the arguments that flying is a net negative, but a lot of the direct action suggestions that I read about or hear about are, you know, make sure you're recycling, make sure you're using less energy, make sure you're driving a Toyota Prius instead of a Toyota 4Runner or taking public transportation and opting out of cars altogether. I'm rambling a little bit, but is what you're saying here, I'm wondering, common amongst the most important or the most influential people in the environmental community? Or do you feel like you are on an island and what you're saying here is controversial? I feel like I'm a little bit ahead of my time sometimes, you know, it's like, all right, I, I just try to simplify things. Let's, and you know, what is our personal Im- impact on the environment? So if you, if you put it on a personal level, 
um, you, you got to do all you, you, you can do. And, you know, no amount of recycling that you're going to do in the course of a year is going to offset the amount of carbon just in one flight. I've, I've seen, you know, where people, they do organic gardening so that they have, a, you know, they're heating with, they're heating with wood. They may have solar panels. You know they're doing they're doing a lot of good stuff, and but it only took one flight a year to to um, you know kind of not offset that, but to kind of like make it null and void. So yeah, I just think at at, at some point it you know if we're not having the conversations now, then it's going to be a lot harder to have them in the future. Where you know the, the if we go above two degrees Celsius. Uh, you know, there's going to be some real, real tough times for people. You've had a pretty active life in the public sphere. We were talking earlier in the conversation about your service as the Penobscot Nation chief. Is being politically active and being vocal and public about these issues something that you see as elective or a mandate that more people in our community, more trail runners that recreate in the outdoors should be thinking critically about and prioritizing in their lives. Yeah, I um, I come to my position mostly from a native perspective. You know, raised by elders who passed down traditional knowledge and traditional values and traditional teachings. Where your first responsibility as a human being is to protect your your mother the earth and you you know we've all heard leave your campsite better than you found it mm. well what that really means is your campsite is, is in fact the, the entire earth so you you have to leave it better than you found it for future generations so we have this thing that no no thing nothing you can do now can bring harm to the next seven generations now that's quite a that's quite a a responsibility to take on and that's that's what motivates me. So and I really don't like politics. Oh my goodness. We I think America really is 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 has gone down the wrong road in terms of politics because they allowed money to to be part of leadership and it just doesn't work and it hasn't worked and it's it's not going to work. And, and I think that, in a nutshell, is, has has put all of us in a bad position. You know, so I'm calling on everybody to not fly, but the government is promoting it by not providing good alternatives. <laughs> you know, we got alternative solutions, and they're not being they're not being um, you know, brought to the forefront, you know, that we're still subsidizing as American taxpayers, the oil industry. Yeah. Why is that? Why are we subsidizing the oil industry? We should be subsidizing, you know, alternative energy. Why are we subsidizing big agriculture when we should be subsidizing organic agriculture? So I do do my part, in, um, and I'm also an educator, so I do travel and I talk about Native um, history, Native culture, and you know Native affairs. Mm. And 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 usually in those conversations, 
we do talk about, you know, what is our role? What is what is the native perspective on our role with the environment? And for me personally, it, you know, I I, I stand by those old teachings. We just we have to be our our Earth's caretaker. That's the that's the only thing she asks of us. <laughs> you know, she gives us life through oxygen. You know, the you know, the sun and the trees and plants and the animals. And the only thing she asks in return is that we take care of her. Yes. So that's what guides me. So you said something interesting in there that when you're living on this earth, you need to be living with the next seven generations of people in mind. And that's a part of this native perspective on how we should live with the earth. Can you talk more about this perspective? Like what else does it have to say about the ideal lifestyle today? Well, I I think that's basically it in a nutshell. It's a very simple lesson. And I think um, that's, that's the beauty of it. That's the power is the simplicity. The problem is in, uh, in today's lifestyle, even native people are partaking in the, you know, the modernization of, of technology, including travel. So it's awful easy to get away from those old teachings when they they kind of ask of you to not fly, to not, you know, to do these things um, that bring harm to the environment. So the, a lot of the Native people that I've talked with about, you know, their flying is, well, I have to fly. I have to because I, it's my job or I have to because... The work that I do as a result of flying uh, is benefiting the environment, you know, based on policy and things like that. So, like it's a, like it's an evil necessity. But uh, again, it, at at that point, it, it it has to come back to you, you know, your personal constitution. Mm-hmm. I could have twice. I could have had jobs that I, I would have made a lot of money, and they required flying, so I didn't take I didn't take them. So, you know, it's a personal constitutional thing. But I think in terms of the old teachings, you know, you, it makes sense. It makes perfect sense. You know, if you're using up the resources, you're, you're depleting them, then that's something that future generations won't have. And the problem with climate change is we are seeing the extinction of species every day now. Some species is going extinct every day, and as it as the temperature rises, it'll 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 affect more. You know, right here in Maine, you're seeing the lobsters. Uh, it's affecting the lobsters. Soon they'll be going north. You know, once the water reaches one more degree, they, we won't have lobster. So, at some point, you know, we've got to really take notice of this, and I think. For me personally, those those teachings of you know do no harm brings it right in right in it, it makes it the perfect um, model for ensuring that there is life for future generations. Mm. They can't they got they need air they, they breathe you know they need water to drink they need food to eat as we do and it's our job to ensure that. All right, we're going into the rapid fire question round. The first question I have for you, what is something that you used to believe either in running or some other area of life that you have recently changed your mind about and why? Oh, that you had to run every day. 
I don't run every day. I run when I can, and I seem to do better doing that so I don't get burnt out. I know we have been talking a lot about the environment during this conversation. Are you optimistic about the future of this planet, given all of your positions in how you see the world? I feel it's my optimism that calls upon us all to do what we can in terms of preserving life on this planet. I I see that as a very positive thing to look forward to. It sounds like you are a fan of the sport to some degree. I'm curious who your favorite ultra runner is. Well, I got to tell you, you know, bumping elbows with Kyle Metzler was a big treat for me. My wife would, my wife teased the hell out of me for being starstruck. All I did was talk about Kyle for the next couple of days. So, <laughs> you know, I like Kyle. Um, I didn't really know who he was when he was in his prime. So now that he's kind of past his prime and he broke the AT record, that's when I first really got introduced to him. So it's like, and I like him, you know, because I met him and um, at the time that I, first knew of him he was not on top of his game anymore i i find the runners that i probably like most are the ones that i i might connect with more you know i think some of the runners are so out there in terms of their you know professionalism highly sponsored you know i i don't i don't subscribe to that type of lifestyle so those you know the biggest names are probably not ones that i would say Oh, I know who it is. The Raramari runners. Mention a Raramari runner and I go crazy. <laughs> Have you read Born to Run? Yeah, I did. And uh, that was that was a really, really fun read. Although he did, you know, stretch the truth a lot. <laughs> it's it's kind of like, yeah, but, you know, he's, he's an author, so let him go. It was fun. Are you returning to the 100-mile wilderness this summer? And if so... What are your goals? Yes, I am returning. And yes, I plan to achieve greatness. Is sub 39 hours in the cards? I'm not going to put a time on it right now because I want the time to be a secondary thought. I want the effort and, you know, the, the moment by moment concentration from start to finish to be the focus, not the time. I'll let the time happen as it happens. Last Otherwise, I might break your record. You, you know, if I focus <laughs> on the time, I'm going after your record. <laughs> <laughs> Quite impressive. You're at a 29 now, right? I did 29 hours two summers ago, and I know this sounds crazy, but yeah, heading back this summer and the goal is to do it in under one day, sub 24 hours. I think, I think it's doable. There are times even for me, a much older runner, runner, you know, hiker that I get into a groove and I know I'm, I'm I'm over three miles an hour. And I think with your youth and your training, your knowledge, uh, I think you got it. Oh, thank you. I think a lot of runners that go northbound, they obviously pay a lot of respect to that barren chairback range in the first quarter, but because, you know, there's just a lot of relentless up and down, a lot of climbing, very technical, a lot of descending, very technical there. And then when they look at a map after Whitecap, they just see total flatness. But that to me, those last 40 to 50 miles were the most difficult terrain because there's no solid earth under you and you've been on your feet for, you know, 12, 14, 15, 16 hours 
and you're trying to navigate this rooty, rocky, slippery section, your mind has to be alive. It has to be functioning at a very high degree at a point when you're supposed to be very sleep deprived. So that's the section where I think if you're well-trained, if your legs are strong, if your mind is still strong, if you've been eating well, if you're in the right frame of mind there and have legs under you, you can you can uh, make up a lot of time. You can go faster. So we'll see. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you got to get trail hardened. This is the last question here. I ask it to every guest. If you could put a message on a billboard for all to see, what would it say and why? Honor the earth for it's the only one we have. Well, Barry, I have really enjoyed this conversation. I deeply appreciate your time. Is there anything else you want to leave the audience with? Any calls to action? Anything in particular to think about as they go about their days and lives? I don't think there's anything I could say that would that would really make a big difference in how how the community is right now. Other than everything that you know, you and I have talked about. I plant a seed, and you know, at some point that seed will take hold. It it doesn't necessarily uh, take hold now, but um, in in the future, I think we all need to learn to run local and enjoy life on a more local scale even though local doesn't have to mean just your backyard, it can be, you know, on a much broader, uh, but at that point, you know, we become stewards, not just users. Well, this has inspired me to go chase down a figurative caribou in my, uh, evening runs. And I think a lot of other folks, they tend to listen to this podcast on their runs and maybe they're feeling a similar inspiration. So Yeah, thanks for giving us a lot of new perspectives to think about. I love that run local message, and I wish you the best of luck on your vision quest in the wilderness this summer. Very good. Well, thank you very much, and best of luck to you. Okay, thanks as always for listening. If you haven't done so already, please hit that subscribe button and leave a rating and review in your podcast player so that more trail runners can discover the show. And yep, that is my only ask. Until next time, I'm your host, Finn Melanson, and you have been listening to The Single Track.